Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Episode 36, Intensified Conflict. Once Jesus came into Jerusalem, his enemies threw stumper questions at him in an effort to discredit him before the populace. Jesus ably diffused these theological bombs and lobbed his own in return. He told parables about the religious leaders that infuriated them while delighting the crowds. Coupled with his early acts, Jesus' public defiance was sure to land him in trouble, as we shall soon see. If you'd like to watch a video of this class or download the course notes, visit restitutio.org. Here is part 12 of the historical Jesus, Intensified Conflict. During his last week, Jesus spent his days in the temple courts, and he went at night to his friend's house in Bethany on the Mount of Olives. So you've got to imagine he spends the days there in the public eye, but then he leaves every night. During this time, this last week of his life, everything we've, saw, we've seen about conflict in the past gets intensified. And now, different groups all take their shot at Jesus. Jesus stands and he is teaching publicly in the temple courtyards. You've got to imagine this. He's not in a building. The temple is a building, but the only people that can go in the building called the temple are the priests. You know, so he's not going to be in the building. He's going to be in the courtyard, these massive uh, courtyards where he can have people around him that can hear him. And so the first question they throw at him right after this demonstration in the temple is, by what authority, Jesus, excuse me, by what authority are you doing this? That's their question for him. And that question's got like a double edge to it, right? Because Jesus can't say, oh, it's by the authority of the high, high priest Joseph Caiaphas. He can't say that. It's not by, you know what I mean? He can't say it's by the authority of the Sanhedrin. He can't say it's by the authority of the proconsul uh, Pilate. He, it's by the authority of God, right? He's like a prophet speaking for God. But if he says it's by the authority of God, they'll just say, why should we believe you? Right? And, it's, and it's easy to see how they can somehow undermine his credibility. These people don't even know him, most of these people. I mean, he's got his people that are there in the crowd. But a lot of the people listening to him in Jerusalem at this time, they've never seen him before. Maybe they saw him, but it was just like, oh, there's just another person. right? And now he's, he's in the public eye. And so they want to undermine him. Because if they can undermine his credibility, he cannot start a movement. He cannot cause any trouble if people just write him off as a wacko. So Jesus, there, I mean, it's just unbelievable what he does. He says to them, look, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. John's baptism, from heaven or from men? And they said, oh, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one, because if we say yes, then he'll say, why weren't you baptized by John? If you believe it's from God, and if we say from men, then, then we fear the people. Because they all believe John was a prophet, right? So the very thing Jesus, they're trying to do to Jesus, undermine his credibility, Jesus would do to them if they said the truth. So they said, we don't know. 
And Jesus says, well, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. And I mean, just imagine, this is like, you just got to imagine the crowd. I mean, they don't know anything. They're just there to celebrate Passover. They're like, yeah, let my people go. You know, Moses, Egypt, the whole celebration, right? And, they, and they're just seeing this, and they're just like, who is this guy? Did you see that? He just shut them up. Yeah, nobody shuts these guys up. Who does he think he is? Right? And, there, and there's a lot of curiosity. Then they come at him. Uh, so that was the chief priests and the elders that brought that one. So these are, the, these are the people that have the ability to arrest you, put you, you know, in jail, and ask Pilate to kill you. I mean, these are the, and that's what Jesus, he shuts them right down. Then the next group comes up to him. This, there are three of these stumper questions. The second one is uh, about paying taxes to Caesar. The Pharisees and the Herodians tried to entangle him. Now, the Herodians are the people that are associated with Herod, Antipas of Galilee. He's the ruler up there, Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. And so they're politically motivated to deal with Jesus. And the Pharisees, they don't, they're not, they don't really care about Herod. What they care about is the law and they think Jesus. So you have this like the enemy of my enemy is my friend uh, coalition going on here. And they sharpen up this question. They get it just right. And then they throw it right at Jesus. Right. And they ask him the question, teacher, and it's so funny how they started, too. They, they try to butter him up. They say, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Whew, that's another good question, right? If he says, Yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, He's just lost all the people. All the people hate paying taxes to Rome because Rome is an imposter nation. This is God's promised land. He gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the land of King David. Why are these, why are these dogs, these Gentiles, why are they here at all? I don't want to give them my money. Right? So if you're the Messiah, you should have something to say about this. Right? And the people don't want him to say yes, pay taxes. He, he loses his credibility with the people if he says yes. If he says no, they're going to go report him. He'll be arrested by dinner. I mean, that's all it takes to get arrested by the Roman government. All you have to do is go in a public place and say, I don't think we should pay taxes. <laughs> Boom. I mean, you want to <laughs> hit him in a sore spot, that's where you go. And so Jesus says, bring me a coin. Bring me a coin. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So one of them handed him a coin. Jesus looked at it and he says, whose inscription is this on the coin? Right? And then what do they say? Caesar's. Right? This is Caesar's head on the coin. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and when it's a God, what is God's? It's the perfect answer. It avoids both pitfalls, both ditches on either side, and people can interpret it in different ways depending on how they hear it. And so they're just like, yeah, but, and there's no, there's no comeback. They, it says they marveled. They're just like, wow, I thought that question would be, that would surely entrap him. Either way, we win, but somehow we lose again. And so that was the chief priests and the elders for the first question. That was the Pharisees and the Herodians for the second question. Jesus is like, come on, bring it on. Here comes the Sadducees. They're going to throw them their curveball. And Jesus is going to knock it right out of the park. 
Um, this is uh, the third question. The Sadducees come and they say, all right, Jesus, Moses said, if your brother dies and he had been married, or no, yeah, if your brother dies and he had been married, you're supposed to marry the widow if he didn't have any kids so that you could raise up offspring in his name. And then they hit him with this preposterous riddle, right? There once was a woman who had seven husbands, right? It almost sounds like an Irish limerick. Uh, and, you know, the first one dies, and then so the second brother marries the widow, then he dies, and the third one marries the widow, then the fourth one says, I don't know, it's such a good idea to marry this widow, but he does it anyhow. No, I'm just kidding. And right down to the seventh one, and they all die, and then the widow died last. She was a widow seven times over. Whew. Yeah. Yeah, this hypothetical. And they, they, uh, the whole purpose of this is the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. And so they're trying to deal with Jesus on that. They're trying to prove that resurrection is dumb. And you shouldn't believe in it because it contradicts the law of Moses. The law of Moses says a brother should raise up offspring for his brother who died. And so Jesus is dealing with this. And this is his response. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. It turns out, and they already knew this, that when your spouse dies, the marriage ends. Everybody knows that. That's why they got married again, right? And so the only way for the Sadducees' preposterous riddle to actually be a problem is if you were still married in the resurrection to the person whose marriage you ended with when you died, right? And so, in other words, you would have to get married in the resurrection. Do you see what I'm saying here? Because when somebody dies, the marriage ends. Whether it's you or the other person, that ends the marriage. So in order for this to be a problem, they'd have to get remarried in the resurrection. And Jesus says they don't get married in the resurrection. Nobody's marrying or being given in marriage in the resurrection. We're like the angels. So it's like this isn't even, Jesus is like not even breaking a sweat here. He's just like, do you realize that the answer is in the question here, people? Uh, and then he goes on to make his point in verse 37 here, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God, he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. They believed in the resurrection. They liked that answer. The scribes love it when you quote the law. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. So, to help with this a little bit, I, I want to quote Anthony Buzzard. He writes, The logic of Jesus' argument was simply that since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long been dead, there must be a future resurrection to restore them to life so that their relationship with the living God could be resumed and they could receive what the covenant had guaranteed them. On no account is Jesus' answer to be used as a justification for believing that the patriarchs were already alive. The issue between Jesus and his opponents was whether there would be a future resurrection. Jesus argued that the covenant would fail if the patriarchs were left in their graves. 
For God to be God of the living, the patriarchs must rise to life again in the future resurrection. And so Jesus is pointing to this statement in Exodus chapter 3 where God speaks to Moses and God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for centuries by the time Moses comes around, right? And so Jesus is using that to make the case that God, from his perspective or however you work it out, is going to have to raise them from the dead. He's using it to defend resurrection in order for this statement to work out and to be true. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a curious saying of Jesus, and I, I don't fully understand it, but I, I understand the point of it, and the point of it is to defend or sh- give proof from the Bible for his belief in resurrection to the Sadducees. Now, what happens next? The scribes are there. Other people are there. Everybody's listening in. They're, they're just like, what's he going to say next? You know, what's he going to say next? And the scribes just like, wow, that was really good. That was really good. About the, so the scribe asks an honest question. So he had three stumper questions. And now the scribe said, comes up to him, this one scribe, and asks him an honest question. And his question is not a stumper question. It's just to see what Jesus had to say on this one issue here. And the question he asks is, which commandment is the greatest of all? You're a scribe, you, you, you're into reading scripture. According to some counts, there are 613. Which one is the greatest? And Jesus quotes to them the Shema, the creed of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe likes Jesus' answer again. This, guy, this is the most agreeable guy in like the whole last week of Jesus' life. He's <laughs> like the one, the one guy that believes in him other than his own followers, right? And uh, the scribe says, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And then Jesus goes to say to him, You know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And just kind of leaves it there. We don't know what happened next or what, 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 whether or not the scribe became a follower or if he believed in him or not. But we do know they agree on the definition of God as a singular individual. The scribe had said, He is one, and there is no other besides him. The word he is a singular personal pronoun, and thus it indicates a singular person as God, as opposed to a plural or plurality. They agree on humanity's duty also. What's humanity's duty is to love God with everything and then love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the the one positive interaction Jesus has in this public scene. Then... Jesus turns the table on them. He goes on the offensive, and he, he gets his stumper question ready and throws it at them. And that's when Jesus asks them the question, what do you think about the Christ? He's talking to the Pharisees in this scene. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Whose son is the Messiah? What do you guys think? And the Pharisees say, the son of David. And then Jesus says, he said to him, this is Matthew twenty-two forty-three. how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> so they, you know, you've got everybody asking Jesus their stumper questions, their riddles, and he's, he's answering them effortless, effortlessly. 
and now he, he gives them one of his own, and they're just like, what? Because the, in, in their mind, the father's always greater than the son, right? And so the patriarchs are, are always greater than anyone who's living in that day. And so David, you know, if the Messiah is the son of David, why does David call the Messiah Lord? doesn't make any sense. How could he, he call his son Lord, right? It seems kind of strange. And so this is one of those that I wish we had a little bit more on, honestly, because Jesus doesn't explain it. I mean, that's the whole point, right, of being a stumper question is you don't explain the answer. Um, so he just lets it hang there in the air. But I'm going to take a stab at it since I'm standing up here and see what you think. Now, there are some exceptions, of course, where fathers are greater than their, or sons are greater than their fathers. Uh, Kish, I wouldn't be surprised if you've never even heard of him. His son was Saul, though, the first and great king of Israel, right? Or Jesse, he was a good man, but David was the king, a man after God's own. So sometimes you could, you could point to exceptions. Uh, but I don't think that's what Jesus is really doing here. Uh, he, he, his mother, of course, was a descendant of David. You know that, right? Mary was a descendant of David. And his father, well, that's another story, right, on his father. Uh, you know, the demons knew who he was. Mary knew who he was. Maybe some of his inner circle knew at this time. But none of the critics knew. They were all clueless, right? But the simple fact is, Jesus is not just the son of David. He's also the son of God. He's both. And so maybe he's trying to lead them towards that understanding. Maybe he's trying to give them a way to, where their mind is going to really chew on something and process it and help them to conclude that he is more than just another son. There were, there were sons of David that were running around in Jerusalem in that very temple area probably. You know, but not other sons of God. I can tell you that much. <laughs> okay, And so that is, uh, I think, what's going on there. And then, after these questions, we get to the parables against his enemies. And these are interspersed within the stumper questions. Everything is all lumped together. I'm, I'm just splitting it out so that it's easy for me to, to talk about right now. But interspersed in between, you have these parables. And I, I, just, I just marvel at the creative genius of Jesus to answer these I mean, when you're, when you're in a stressful situation, you know how well your mind works creatively? Not well at all, right? You, you, you sink into like fight or flight mode and you can't really come up with anything whimsical. Jesus apparently did not have that problem because he would answer the toughest stumper question and then throw back at them a made-up story that would exactly hit them in the most convicting way. I love it. I think it's so cool. And so... Of course, if you ask Jesus, he would say, these are not my own words. I'm just doing what the Father has told me, right? Because he had that incredible connection and humility, paradoxical submission. Um, the first one here is in Matthew 21, where the Father, Jesus has just answered the stumper question about the authority. Who, by whose authority do you do this? He answered that. And then he says, let me tell you guys a story. There was a father who had two sons. And the first son, he, he said, Boys, I want you to go work in my vineyard. The first son said, no, I ain't, I ain't working in the, I'm not working in the vineyard today, Dad. I'm not doing it. And then later on, he changed his mind, and he went and he worked. Right? That's the one I identify with. And then the second son says, I'll do it. I'll, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then he doesn't do it. Right? And so Jesus asked him the question, which one did the Father's will? 
They say, well, it's the first son. And then Jesus says the following. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. That's a zinger. That's what I call those parables. Very convicting, right? So they had just been talking about John's baptism and all this. And Jesus is like, yeah, John's baptism. You didn't believe it in the beginning. You're like the, you're like the son that said no. But then even later on when you saw all the people believed and that this was actually an act of God, you still didn't change your mind. You're worse than either of those kids, right? Why does Jesus do this? Why does he talk to them like this? I believe it's because he's trying to get them to repent. He's trying to, he's not, he's not just being mean, or he's not being mean at all. He's speaking truth, but it's designed to pierce the heart. But you cannot, nor could Jesus, force anyone to change. You just can't. Everyone has to choose. God doesn't even force people to do that, right? And so Jesus is giving them every reason in the world. In the midst of all this, I haven't even mentioned this, he's healing lame people and blind people. Right? He's carrying on his healing ministry. He's preaching to the, the crowds. He's handling the stumper questions. He's throwing back these parables. I mean, what else do they want? To believe that he's the one. And they just will not believe. So the, here's a second parable. I've got three of these. Uh, the parable of the wicked tenants. Following right on the heels of this one, this is a guy who owned a vineyard, and he rented it out to some tenants, and he sent some servants and they beat up some servants, and they treated them shamefully, and they even killed some servants. And uh, then the, the owner says, well, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. And what they say is, when they see him coming, they say, oh, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And that's what they do. And Jesus asks the question. I love how he does it. He asks the question. He doesn't just tell it to him. He asks the question. What do you think he's going to do when he comes? What do, you think, what do you think the owner is going to do when he comes? And this is, this, is what they say. this is what they say to Jesus. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. Unwittingly, they've just condemned themselves. That's them. They are the, the, the wicked tenants. They are the ones responsible for caring for God's vineyard, for his people. And instead of accepting the prophet John, they've rejected the prophet John. Instead of accepting the, the son himself, they're just a few days from now going to be shaking their fists saying, crucify him, crucify him. They are exactly those people. Jesus isn't doing this to be cute, and he's not doing it to show off. He's trying to reach them. I believe he's trying to reach them, and that's why he hits them with this. And it, it, it does not work. And then he goes on, he talks about the stone which the builders have rejected. He quotes some more scripture to them. And this is their response. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Duh. Yeah, duh, right? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. We saw last time how they were hanging on his words. You know, it's like, just imagine like, seeing this guy in action, and they're just, they just have no idea who he is. And they're just, did he just say that? Was, oh, he, he was talking about them? Do they realize he's talking about them right now? 
and how everyone must have been so amazed by this. And then he told the story about the wedding banquet. A king gave a wedding feast for his son, and he invited all these people, all these fancy people, all these authorities, all these leaders, all these hotshots. And not only did they not come, but they beat up his servants who gave the message. He even killed some of them. I mean, I love these parables because they're so extreme, right? It really gets your attention. And then he, the king says, you know what, I'm going to open up the invitation. I'm going to, I don't care who comes. Just grab anyone with a heartbeat and bring them in to this wedding. Because I'm, I'm going to have this wedding for my son, and there are going to be people there. I don't care what people they are, just get people there. And uh, so that's what they do. And then... Um, the Fer- you know, and so what, what is the point of this parable? The point of this parable is that the Pharisees were invited to believe in God's Messiah, you know, to join in that marriage celebration, if you will. But they did not. However, these you know, off-scouring of society, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, they received Jesus gladly. They're like, oh, yeah, I believe in you. Right? So that's another story that's, that's showing them, you know, you could say that directly. And Jesus does actually speak to them quite directly after this. But when you tell a story like this that, that really just brings it home at the end like that, I think it really does hit you in the heart more. Sadly, even such razor-sharp and convicting parables could not penetrate the hard hearts of these people. In the end, they would do just as the parable said. Of course, Jesus did not just use parables. He also pronounced judgment. And we looked at this a few times ago when we looked at the conflict, and I read to you part, or I think all, of Matthew 23. That's the eight thunderous woes against the Pharisees and the scribes where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you blind guides of the blind. So he, he does all that during this week as well. Um, and he speaks to them quite directly. And so, what's the aftermath? What's the result of all this? His provocative, triumphal entry. His even more provocative demonstration in the temple, knocking over the money changers' tables and all this, it mobilized his enemies to action, right? They they started gathering around him. They tried to discredit him. By what authority did you do this? That didn't work. So, they tried to entrap him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? That didn't work. So, what do, they, what do they do? They try to make him look bad in front of the people. And what does Jesus do? Makes them look bad in front of the people. No matter what they try, no matter what they throw at him, it does not work. And these guys, this is like the, the New York City of Judaism. You, you know what I mean? Like this, These are the sophisticates, the people with the education, the people that have authority and think they're so great. That wasn't really a nice description of New York City, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> New York City is great. But um, the people in Jerusalem, these are the hot shots of their society, right? They wouldn't be living out in the country somewhere. They're living here in the city. And, and they are dealing with this Galilean preacher with probably a Galilean accent from the country. And he is just whooping them right in front of everybody. And, but, but then the people, the people, that, you know, the chief priests, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the scribes, they, they didn't like that. But the people, they loved it. The people loved it. They debated with each other. Could this be the Messiah? Could this one be the Messiah? Could it be? It's like, well, was he born in Bethlehem? Well, I don't think he was born in Bethlehem. You know, uh, could, could God's Messiah 
be a Galilean? That's a crazy idea. I don't know. If he's not the Messiah, could he do these miracles that he's doing? He healed my Aunt Bertha. Poor woman had a terrible name. Uh, and uh, she was lame, and then Jesus healed her, right? Um, and uh, people wondered. And you know what? There's another, there's another thing I, I forgot to mention, but it's, it's important. And it's before this entry into Jerusalem and all this, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay? And Lazarus came with Jesus to the, to the temple, and he was with them, right? So you've got loudmouth Bartimaeus and resurrected Lazarus, probably on either side of Jesus, like, yeah, what he said, yeah. And everyone's just like, who is this guy? What do we do? You know what the authorities say? They said, you know what? Let's kill Lazarus. I know he was already dead, but let's do it again. <laughs> let's kill him. And then let's kill Jesus, too. That's their conclusion to the whole matter. This is what we read, Matthew 26, verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And I think you kind of understand that a little bit better now that I went through some of those incidents before and after the time of Christ where there were uproars among the people. So they continued. But Jesus is like, all right, I'm just going to keep preaching. Jesus is, is, is bold. Jesus is out there. Jesus is public. He is claiming to be the Messiah in every way he can. We read, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him during this time. They believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They were going to have to wait, these authorities, they were going to have to wait and hatch a plan to whisk him away when he was alone. But where did Jesus stay? They didn't know where he stayed. When could they get him when he wasn't surrounded by people? If only they had an insider, one of Jesus' own circle, that could point out a time and a place when they could grab him without all the people finding out about it, right? And that's uh, what we'll look at in the future. But for next time, before we get to Judas, we need to talk about the end of the world. So, Jesus talks about the end of the world during this time. So, we're going to talk about the end of the world. And then we'll talk about the Last Supper. All right? Thanks for coming. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.